Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to get into the college of your dreams, or if you're interested in the field of education, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the president and chief operating officer at Signet Education, an education consulting firm located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And its mission is to inspire a love of learning genuine academic growth, and holistic success in their students' lives. But before I introduce you to Sheila Akbar, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features jobs, companies, and career advice from hundreds of professionals in dozens of industries like Sheila, who actually work there. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time. The number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my espresso-loving education wonks, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Sheila Akbar, the president and COO at Signet Education. Sheila's career spans financial services, academia, entrepreneurship, and educational thought leadership. She joined the Signet team almost 13 years ago in the summer of 2010 as an admissions coordinator. That was after having tried her hand as an analyst at Bank of America and then as an associate instructor at Indiana University. Sheila's backstory is a common one for children of highly educated South Asian families. Both her father and her older brother were doctors. And so when Sheila headed off to university in 1998, that was her goal too. We are going to get into how Sheila stepped into who she really wanted to become and how she and her colleagues at Signet Education try to help hundreds of students a year navigate their post-high school academic lives. Sheila, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thanks, Andrea, for that lovely introduction. I am. I'm ready to do this. But are you caffeinated? Probably not as much as I need to be, but I am caffeinated. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, great. So I thought maybe we could pick up your story where I left things off in a moment ago. Where did you grow up, Sheila? So I grew up in a small town in Michigan. I was born in Caseville, Michigan. And for those of you Michiganders, I'm holding up my hand and pointing to the very tip of my thumb. I grew up there. We moved around a little bit. And then in high school, I was living in Saginaw, Michigan. So 
a bigger city, but by no means a big city. I was one of the onlys in a lot of the places that I went. So we were the only non-white family for a long time. We were the only non-Christian family for a long time. I just sort of got used to being that, that only. But Michigan is a, I think, a wonderful place to grow up. I will say, I don't think I want to live there as an adult, but no offense to those who are, who are still living there. There's some great parts of Michigan, some wonderful things to offer. But I really enjoyed growing up there. It's really welcoming, you know, everything they say about the Midwest, strong family values, great work ethic, really good schools. So I had a great time growing up there. Awesome. Before we started this interview, you were telling me that your parents came to the U.S., I guess came to Michigan or somewhere thereabouts, Mm -hmm. in the 1970s from Bangladesh. Yes. How did your parents and extended family talk about education and their expectations for you around your college education and how much of that was grounded in the culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Education was one of those things that we kind of always talked about, whether it was, you know, what are your grades in school? How do you do on that test? Are you studying? What does your teacher think about this? And, you know, are you the best in the class? And my parents, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but my brother and I are only a year apart and they managed to get us to be quite competitive with one another. And I was a year younger than him. And so at some point I realized, wait, he will always know more than me because he's been alive a year longer than I have. And as a like a six or seven year old, I got really obsessed with the idea of becoming a speed reader because in my mind, that was the only way I could catch up to him or potentially oh surpass God. him. I had to absorb knowledge at a faster rate than he did to make up for that year of extra living. But yeah, so we talked about it all the time. And my extended family, of course, also always talked about it. It wasn't always in the framework of what are you going to study or where are you going to go to college? It was more of a, you're going to do this career, right? So you know, you have to be the best all the way down the line. And by this career in my family, it was medicine. My father was a doctor. My brother followed that path as well. But it was very clear to me from a young age that It mattered to my parents how I was doing in school for many more reasons than just my future success. It was also about our family building roots in this country. It was also about us kind of claiming our worthiness almost to be here as immigrants. I think they faced a lot of you know, I don't I don't know if they ever faced outright discrimination. I've certainly encountered some of that in my life, but you know, some uncomfortable moments. We'd walk into a restaurant and everyone would stop eating and look up at us and, and things like that that just made it very clear that we were seen Different. as other. We were outsiders. Yeah. And getting a really good education, being seen as the best in our class, you know, for me and my brother, getting a career that would offer some social status was really important to my parents. And I think a lot of it was a reaction to their experience as immigrants. Yeah, no doubt about it. I personally am also first gen on my dad's side. He came to the US at age 13 from the UK. So I experienced some of this. Mm -hmm. I didn't look different, Mm -hmm. but I certainly had that cultural undercurrent. 
being raised by a father who was a German Jew whose parents had fled Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. So I want to read from a LinkedIn post that you wrote about six months ago, Sheila. Okay. Quote, when I was growing up, my family had super high expectations for me and I lived up to them as best I could. I went off to Harvard University with the goal of becoming a doctor like my dad and brother. But a few years into college, I finally admitted to myself that it was not what I wanted. Trouble was, I had no idea what I did want or how to figure that out. And now I'm just going to skip to the part about how you started putting the pieces together of your professional puzzle and jump to where you explained. I had never given myself the chance to figure out what I truly wanted for myself and had only been trying to please others, my parents, teachers, romantic partners, etc. When I found the thing that clicked, all that noise just faded away. I could finally listen to myself. I share this not because I think my story is so unique. I share it because we know it is so common, but we rarely talk about how to pursue our own definition of success in a way that feels authentic to us. So let's flash way back, Sheila, to the early 2000s when you were still at college. What was your major when you first declared it and how was that going for you? Sure. It's funny to hear one's words read back to them. I was like, wow, I really said the thing I meant to say. That was a good post. So back in college, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor or thought that I wanted to be a doctor. But I was an interesting kid. And I was really interested in Persian poetry from the 11th to the 15th century or so. And I actually have this book on my desk. I'm going to hold it up to you so you can see. But this is a a collection of translated Rumi poems. Rumi was a a poet who lived in modern day Turkey, but in the 1200s. And uh, his translator, Coleman Barks, is a beautiful translator. He doesn't actually know Persian, but he's a beautiful translator. And the poetry is just gorgeous. He was working off of someone else's translations. And I got kind of obsessed with this poetry in high school. And so I decided I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be a pre-med. But I'm actually going to study Near Eastern languages and civilizations and learn this poetry in the original language. So that was sort of, you know, a little bit of me rebelling and listening to that voice a little bit. So I was the only major my year in that field. And you were the only one at Harvard. The only one. Yeah. I mean, there were people who were older than me uh, and there were lots of grad students. Oh, okay. But so you were probably having more like the British experience, like tutorials. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very small classes, lots of personalized attention that I was not ready for. But yeah. And I think it had a lot to do with why I got into Harvard. You know, I had good grades and a good SAT. And I think I wrote a nice essay. But, you know, I wanted to do something and nobody else wanted to do. And they had this whole department dedicated to it. So why not? They need somebody. (laughs) Why not me? Anyway, I, I loved those classes. I really loved learning languages. Even in high school, I loved learning languages. So learning more languages was just a lot of fun. Getting to understand how to approach literature in a more advanced, sort of sophisticated way was also really eye-opening for me because studying literature in college is nothing like studying literature in high school. You know, you read a book. Well, it's not so much you read a book and you write a paper about it or you talk about it in class. It's 
let's really dig in here to the craft that this author is using. Let's understand the sort of philosophical underpinnings of everything mentioned in this poetry. Let's understand how metaphor works in the human brain. And it it was just fascinating to me. At the same time, in college, I was very humbled. Certainly to be at Harvard, I was not the smartest person in the room anymore, where it was very clear that I was in my very small high school in rural Michigan. And so that was a very humbling experience. And I learned to, you know, listen, keep my mouth shut and then speak when I had something really interesting to say. That's that was a skill that I learned then that still serves me now. But I was able to sort of relax my standards for excellence a little bit as well. Because in high school, I just had all this pressure from my parents. I was kind of the biggest fish and I, you know, was doing all the things. And then in college, I was like, well, I don't really need to do any of that anymore. Number one, my parents aren't expecting much more of me. I got into Harvard. So like, okay, right, <laughs> box checked. Yep. Didn't you have to get into medical school? Well, sure. And and I'm the kind of person I'm always going to do pretty well. Like I don't have it in me to just mail it in. But I didn't feel the need to go over and beyond the way I would in, in high school. So I wasn't as serious a student, let's say. And it's all relative. But I really enjoyed my time in college. Like I actually had a social life (laughs) where I didn't have much of one in high school. And it was nice having that independence. But, you know, to get to the the moments that I think we really want to talk to, speak to here, I was doing all my pre-med classes. It was about time for me to register for the MCAT. This was in my junior year. So it would have been maybe in 2000, maybe early 2001. And I could not bring myself to register for that test. And now I am a very good test taker. I mean, I run a company where we do test prep. I devise the whole system. I got a perfect score in my SAT. I got a perfect score in my GRE when I applied to grad school. I'm a very good test taker. And I sort of knew, okay, well, if I'm registering for this test, I know the wheels are going to be set in motion. I am going to study because that's the kind of person I am. And I'm going to do really well. It's going to be very hard to say, I don't want to go to med school if I have this great MCAT score and this great academic record, you know? And also, you know, the MCAT's not a test that you just decide to take on a whim. That is a heavy lift. So I knew that I was going to be embarking on a very, very serious process in that moment. And that was the moment where I was like, what am I doing? Like, who are we trying to kid here? This is your father's dream. This is not your dream. And that saying it, out loud. I mean, I sort of said it in my head, but kind of out loud, I suppose. (laughs) That rang so true to me. It was a truth that I knew for so long, but had never really let myself think about it for a whole host of reasons. But when I finally admitted that to myself, I was like, right, there's no going back now. I'm going to have to tell my family. I'm going to have to figure all this out. Like, what do I even do? And I'm a very action-oriented person. I don't sit and deliberate for a very long time. My business partner will tell you that. I like to rip the Band-Aid off. So I feel like I was going home. Maybe it was just about to be spring break or something. And my dad was driving me home from the airport. And I was like, so dad, I kind of realized something. And to my dad's credit, he, he, he listened, he was very patient and he was supportive, but I could tell he was extremely sad and worried. That sense of worry came out because for him, becoming a doctor is a known process. He knows what that looks like. He went through it. My brother was going through it at the time. It was very clear to everybody. These are the steps. 
you do this thing and then you do that thing and then this happens and then you're successful. It's a clear path. And not becoming a doctor, even if I were to think about some of those other careers that South Asian families tend to encourage their kids to go to, the paths aren't quite as linear as becoming a doctor. Like that's one career path that is very, very clearly mapped out for everybody. So I could see that he, I could sense that he was really worried about like, well, what do you, what do you do now? If you're not on that path. You were on the Near Eastern Languages and Civilization track. Uh Right. What do I do with that major? What do I do with my life? How do I even start to think about it? So did you know what you wanted to do, Sheila, when you graduated? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh, yeah, this is the thing. And I would kind of convince myself it was the thing. So the first thing that happened after I dropped my pre-med status was I thought about publishing because I love poetry and I loved literature. And I was like, I could go into publishing. That's interesting. I could translate, maybe eventually start my own publishing house where we just publish works in translation. Oh, it's this beautiful idea. And I was like, let me test this out before I go whole hog. So I did an internship at a place called The New Press in New York City, which publishes all sorts of really interesting things. And I will tell you, it was not for me. It moved very slowly. And like I said, I'm very action oriented. Also, I have this sort of quantitative side to myself, right? I had studied, I'd done all my pre-med requirements. I was a math and science. I was on the math team in high school. You know, I, I, I like STEM subjects. So I needed something that was like a little more quantitative. So I did the internship and I was like, okay, that's not for me. And then this would have been 2001. And everybody was just sort of flocking to Wall Street from the Ivy League. And, you know, Wall Street does a great job of luring these kids in. You know, they wined and dined us. They had events at art galleries. We felt so fancy. And they would fly us down to New York for events. And it just felt very glamorous. And they were also dangling very large paychecks in front of us. And I was like, okay, this feels stable. There's a lot of money. It's prestigious. My parents will understand it and be happy about this. They can brag to their friends about this. And they seem to really want me. And because I had all these language skills in Persian and Arabic, the oil and gas teams really liked me. And so I you know, went through all of the recruiting and, and interview processes for that. And I ended up at Bank of America on the oil and gas trading desk. And it was exciting and glamorous and all of this. But again, just not for me. It was just not for me. And I saw that about three months in when sort of the excitement died down. I was like, huh, that's all there is to this job. Not to say that I had mastered it, but I kind of saw it and was like, I don't really want to be in the position of any of my bosses. I don't really want to become a managing director at a big bank. This feels like it's going to be the same thing day in and day out. And yeah, there's the, you know, the thrill of making tons of money, but is that really why I worked so hard and went to Harvard? And is that, is that what my life is about? I did it for uh, about a year and a half. And then I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and again, I left before I knew what I was going to do next. Saved up some money. I just had a really nice time living in New York, <laughs> spending all of my savings. And I, I was trying to figure it out. What was I going to do next? I tried thinking about architecture. I got an internship with an architect. I started filling out architecture applications. I did the same thing with film school. I was like, maybe it's film school. Maybe I just need to go like all the way creative. And then I was like, wait, no, I'm not. I'm not that creative. Film school is not for me. And then one day it dawned on me that 
I was still reading this poetry. Every day I would come back to this book and read some poetry and I loved it. And I would sometimes translate things that I was working on when I was in college. And it just dawned on me like, oh, this is the thing that I should go back and do. I should probably become a professor of this material. But given that I had sort of had these fits and starts on different career paths, I I was very hesitant to just apply for a PhD. Also knew that my college record wasn't amazing and I had nothing academic to show for my time away. So I was like, let me just do a master's first. So I went back and I did my master's and I loved it. I spent eight hours a day in the library, just like lost in the books. And I loved everything about it. And so then I decided to apply for a PhD. And I went to Indiana University and was able to actually do two PhDs, one in comparative literature and one in Near Eastern languages, just to kind of round out. I was thinking about marketability on the educational job market. I'm Um, just laughing, Sheila, out of in awe (laughs) of you. The fact that you you go back and you're like, "Ah, you know, one PhD, anybody can do that. (laughs) I have never heard of someone going for two PhDs at the same time. It's like, go big or go home. Yeah. What were you thinking you would do with those PhDs? And do you think that fear played a role at all in your decision to get a PhD. Mm. In other words, the world outside of academia seemed scary to you Mm -hmm. or just uncertain. And you were clearly struggling to figure it out how your skills and interests in Near Eastern languages and civilizations to find jobs at companies Mm -hmm. that you might like, let alone Yeah. Well, I had never really thought about that. Like, what could I do with a master's or a PhD in NELC that you know, was interesting to anybody. There are things, certainly lots of people go from PhD to to industry, but I was just so in love with the lifestyle of being a student. And I certainly was playing it safe because I've always been a good student. That was something I knew I could do and I knew I enjoyed, right? So going back to school was definitely a move towards, let me just get in my comfort zone for a little bit and maybe that'll help me figure it out. But I, yeah, I love the lifestyle of researching and teaching and writing and giving talks. I still do a lot of that because I just love that. Transferable skills. Exactly. It's all about transferable skills. But yeah, the, the two PhDs was really because there aren't a lot of universities that have enough, uh, let's say, demand to really need to hire a professor of Persian literature. There are not a lot of them out there. And so I realized when I was going to have to, you know, this, I knew this was the languages, the group of languages that I wanted to study and the material I wanted to study. But in order to become hireable, more marketable to a university, I knew I was going to have to expand a little bit. So really what I ended up doing was creating a program for myself in kind of let's call it Mediterranean literatures, right? Because I did French, Italian, English, some Spanish, and then Persian and Arabic. And all of these cultures were interacting, you know, in Venice, in Istanbul, in, you know, all of these cities around the Mediterranean. And so that's, that was sort of the angle I was, I was taking with all of that. And it was during this time at Indiana University that you ended up becoming an academic advisor mm-hmm. and a tutor for yeah. almost three years. Did you know that you would love 
to mentor students, Sheila? Why did you take that job and what did you discover as a result? Well, I took the job because I had to. It was part of my funding for my PhD program. (laughs) You can come here for free, but you're going to (laughs) work. So I had to do it. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And it reminded me that when I was young, I used to tell my parents that I wanted to be a teacher. And I remember them saying, no, you'll be a doctor. You won't be a teacher. You'll be a doctor. Maybe you could teach other doctors sometime, but no, you're going to be a doctor. And there was always a conversation about what kind of car would you drive as a teacher? What kind of home could you live in? If you were a doctor, you could do this and that, right? They were really kind of painting that picture for me. But I remember that I always enjoyed it. And it came, you know, rushing back when I started teaching at at IU and, and started tutoring as well. And I had always been kind of helping my cousins and, you know, family friends with their tests and other things, giving them tips around how to study languages and stuff. So it all felt very natural to me. And yeah, I started tutoring during my PhD program much more seriously. And then I had left Indiana before I finished my degree. I I moved back to Boston so that I could use the Harvard Library Collections for my dissertation. A lot of manuscripts I was looking at were there. And my good friend Jay from college, he was a freshman when I was a senior, had already started Signet Education. And I was like, oh, I'm a tutor. I know you. I'm going to tutor for you. And yeah, he tried to do like a job interview. It wasn't really an interview. I was like, no, it's happening. You're going to hire me. (laughs) That was, I guess, July 2010. Yeah, I had come out. I think I had come out to look for an apartment a couple months before that. And I just invited him out for a drink. And I was like, by the way, (laughs) I will be your new star tutor. I love that. So you started in the summer of 2010 as Mm -hmm. an admissions coordinator and lead SAT tutor. Yep. and. I love the fact that you got this job because you knew the guy who started it. Yep. Yep. And I usually ask this question at the end of the interview, but I'm going to ask it now, Sheila, Uh because, and this isn't just me, Andrea Koppel, talking about this. This is actually Stanford University professor who has since left this world, John Crumboltz, mm-hmm. PhD, who wrote, luck is no accident. So many of us have had these experiences, encounters that we would chalk up to serendipity mm-hmm. or luck. I like to think of it as magical experiences that end up changing the direction that we were going in changing our careers. Would you say that this Absolutely. with Jay was that for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of rekindled our friendship, which he's one of my best friends now. And our kids are very good friends, which is really sweet. But it changed the trajectory of my career entirely. When I joined Signet, I thought I would be tutoring while finishing my dissertation and then going on the academic job market. As I joined Signet, As you mentioned, I was the lead SAT tutor. I was the admissions coordinator. I kind of built out the infrastructure of Signet really from the ground up. I would take like one department at a time and be like, okay, we're blowing it up. We're doing this other thing. And, you know, our business got more efficient and we got more profitable and we grew and we got better at what we did. And people told each other and, you know, how it happens. And I created my position every time I got a promotion. Like there was no lead SAT tutor before I came. There was no admissions coordinator before I was like, you need someone to coordinate this admissions business. I will do that. 
But how um, did you know how to do that? How, I mean, you had never worked in the education field before. You'd never worked as a manager before. You weren't a pro- you, maybe you were. You had project management skills. Certainly, getting your PhD uh, my time off the ground Street was okay. immensely helpful. I still use those skills to this day. And what I saw from that corporate experience has influenced, you know, sometimes in a positive way, oh, I need to replicate that. Or sometimes in a negative way, we cannot do that thing that they do in the corporate world. We've got to figure some better way out. So that, that's that been very helpful. I did see... I Actually, we skipped over a little piece of my working career. I don't think it's it's on my LinkedIn resume. But between my job on Wall Street and going back to grad school. Because when you apply to grad school, it's like a whole year process before you actually start. In that year, I ended up working as a financial services recruiter. There was a recruiting firm that had called me and said, we want you to go to this hedge fund. You've got exactly what they're looking for. I was like all ready to go to the interview. And I was like, you know what? I just struggled to get out of that world, why would I willingly go back in? And they were so disappointed. They were like, oh, but you'd be so perfect. We've been trying to fill this role for so long. And I we was just having a conversation with them about this whole story about how like, I'm trying to figure this out and I'm probably gonna go to grad school. And they were like, listen, you know a lot of people. People like talking to you. Why don't you just come work for us? So I worked with them for a year and basically moved all of my friends that I graduated with from their current Wall Street job to another Wall Street job. It was a really fun job and very easy, but I learned so much about how to read people, how to interview people, how to set people up for success when they're entering a new environment. And my manager at that job was fantastic. He's still a very good friend of mine. I learned so much from him about how really to build a trusting relationship so that With your team members. With your team, yeah. So that you can give clear feedback and so that people can tell you when they're struggling and ask for help and, you know, all of these things. So I picked up a lot of that. And then, of course, I worked in academia for seven or eight years before I I joined Signet. So I saw, well, I learned a lot about how to teach well and how to train people. I also saw the kind of dysfunction of academia and, you know, wanted to kind of think about ways around that. And I also think Signet, and to Jay's credit, Signet had a very like startup mentality and, and still does in a lot of ways where we're like, there are better ways to do things. We don't have to do them the way that traditional business operate. Let's figure those out. Let's test them out. Let's see what works for us. And so we've been able to kind of be very nimble and try different things. And, and we found some things that really work for us. And through my you know 13 years at Signet, I've learned a lot about managing people, talking to clients and building systems that work. So, Sheila, how have your PhDs, which were, I think, without any kind of pushback from you in somewhat esoteric topics, no, yeah. <laughs> how have they helped you in the various roles that you've held at Signet, whether in terms of the actual subject matter expertise? Mm-hmm. Or in terms of the skills that you honed in terms of research and project management and critical thinking and reading and writing? Yeah, these are great questions. So certainly those transferable skills you just listed off are all very, very valuable to me now. Public speaking was one that I did not expect. But I meet people all the time and they're like, wow, you're so compelling to listen to. And I'm like, oh, it's because I had to give all these talks on like 
14th century poetry that nobody wanted to listen to. And I had to like really bring my full self so that they would listen and think about, you know, this work as interesting and worth funding or, you know, think about uh, publishing something that I was writing. So that's another big one. I think the kind of goal of any PhD program is to train people how to take a very large and in some ways unknown amount of information, understand it and synthesize it and make it relevant to the world. Right. So there was writing that has been done on, you know, this poetry that I studied some of it is in German, some of it is in Persian, some of it is in Arabic. I had to, you know, get that into English. But some of it has not been written. There's so much of this beautiful, beautiful poetry that nobody has written about in an academic way. And so a lot of times I was doing that writing. For the first time, I was looking at, I was translating the material. I was really trying to understand, you know, the context it came from and trying to convince other people in my field, hey, this author is important. This poetic structure is really interesting. At the end of the day, we don't have to go into this too much, but my dissertation was about there's this moment in the early modern period, which is right around like the 15th, 16th century, where artists realize that they can invent themselves in a new way through their art, through their language. This is when perspective, Western perspective was sort of coming to the fore. This is when the printing press came out and books were not just something that rich, very rich people had or kings had, and they were not like art objects. They were things that you could actually read on your own. More people learned to read. It, you know, it was still very classist who, who had access to literature, but more people had copies of books. And so something was happening in our sort of conception of self that we really see when you look at European literature, everybody talks about this, Montaigne's essays, the way Shakespeare is sort of always winking at you in, in his writing, what Petrarch did with uh, the sonnet and, you know, all the people who imitated the sonnet. Well, that same thing is happening in Arabic and Persian literature at the same time. It's uncanny how similar these sort of themes are. And I'm not saying one influenced the other, but I'm saying there was a moment where everybody was sort of like, oh, I can look back at myself and represent that in literature in interesting ways. And how does that tie into what you're doing at Signet and, and how that's transferable? Yeah. Thank you for bringing me back to the question. <laughs> well, what, what I think it does for me now is it's given me a way to think very deeply about anything that anybody wants to do because it's about perception, right? And not just how other people perceive you. It's how you perceive yourself. And there's so many factors at play. It's a whole ecosystem, of course. And, you know, one person's willpower is not enough to overpower it. But the more aware you can be of those, you know, other voices, those societal pressures, the systemic factors that seem to have all kind of conspired to put you exactly where you are in facing the choices that you're facing, the more aware you can be of those things the more control you can have in a situation, the more agency you can have, the more you can say, I am a person who can make choices, <laughs> right? And that is all very tied up in what, you know, the literature I studied was all about, right? That was the philosophical underpinning of all of that. Oh my gosh. Who would have ever thunk that, you know? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. 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 
So Sheila, I would love to pivot now to another area of your expertise. And that is what you're doing at Signet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of just very quickly, what is your best advice to high school students who want to get into their dream schools, their Mm -hmm. dream colleges and universities? How should they approach the application process? And how early should they start planning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great questions. And I'll tell you the secret to the success of students at Signet is a focus on process and not results. So someone might have a dream school, but we aren't going to worry about that right now. What we're going to worry about is what's in front of you and who you are and who you want to be. And how do we help you do that? How do we help you get the most out of your education, the best teacher relationships that inspire you to grow as a person and explore new things, even just better relationships with your friends, better relationships with your own body, you know, sleeping, eating properly, managing your time well, and allowing you to pursue those things you're curious about, those things that you find meaningful to the best of your ability. And that doesn't mean everybody has to do it all the time. It's like, we got to work on setting some priorities. But if we can do that, sort of maximize this present moment, you are making yourself into an amazing candidate for great colleges, right? And the more you can kind of, we see it as a like a strengths-based approach, the more you can focus on those strengths of your own right now, the more you can use those strengths to navigate high school, to navigate the college process, to choose the schools that you want to apply to, and then of course make decisions for the rest of your life. This is high school is a time where we're molding our young adults into people who are about to leave the nest, right? They need to think about what kind of life do they want to live? How are they going to get there? Right? So in that way, you're kind of always in the college process, but you may not be thinking about it explicitly. And in fact, for, you know, ninth and 10th graders to talk to them about, well, here's how you get into Dartmouth University. It's not going to land. It's probably just going to stress them out. They're going to turn themselves into what they think the university wants. And you kind of just shortchange this wonderful potential that they have. They're just brimming with, you know, when you talk to teenagers. But if instead you say, well, what do you enjoy? Why do you like this class more than that class? Or why is it that you don't feel like you like school, but you love reading about Formula One race cars? all day long, you know, really dig into what they're actually interested in and help them see how that can connect to maybe the hoops that they have to jump through with the college process or the classes that they should probably take if they want to be able to get into an engineering program and build Formula One race cars, you know, all of that. You just really, you tie it to something that they care about and it changes the whole conversation. Beautiful. So what about with parents and caregivers? How can they help their teenagers develop a vision for their future? Yeah, it's tough. It's really hard. This is where I think the power of mentorship is just such a beautiful thing. Like if a parent or caregiver can find someone that they trust, that they know their kid is going to be open with, that's almost sort of the best, the best situation, right? Because there's just baggage between parents and kids always, no matter how you present things. 100%. Yeah, you're like, I know. Yeah. 
So I, I think bringing in outside mentors is really helpful. And that doesn't have to be a college admissions consultant. It could be the soccer coach that they already really love or a family friend or an older cousin. Who knows, right? But parents can really, I think, ease the tension by getting really clear about what they want for their kids and why. So even before they talk to their kids about it, like if they're thinking, oh yeah, my kid's going to go off to Harvard and they're going to be a doctor. Well, why do you want that? What is it that you're hoping for for them? Is it success and stability? Is it some amount of prestige? There's nothing wrong with those things. I think just really being clear about it is helpful and understanding is that something that benefits you or is it something that's going to benefit your kid? And, you know, I'm a parent myself. I know that it is very hard to separate the two sometimes. <laughs> but the more honest you can be with yourself about that, the easier time you're going to have talking to your kid and accepting who they actually are and not always just projecting this sort of who you want them to be onto them. Oh, so beautiful. Sheila, I would love to pivot to the final Two questions now. Okay. I usually ask three, but I'm going to ask you since I already asked you the magic question uh-huh. that I try to ask all time for coffee guests. And this first question has to do with if you would share a time in your clearly very successful professional life when you either face planted or struggled or even failed. I myself was fired twice in my 40s. I look back on those experiences with so much gratitude because had they not happened, I wouldn't be where I am today. Right. And I, I ask this question because I want our young listeners to appreciate that a failure, that a fail, even getting fired is not like getting an F on an exam. It's an opportunity for growth, for learning. Mm-hmm. And so if you could share an example from from your life, and the most important part here is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, sure. Well, I have so many of them. And I feel like my entire career story that we went through is like failure after failure after failure. (laughs) Really, you know, I thought that I wanted to work in finance. And when I realized I didn't want to, I felt like I had failed. And I started to feel like, well, what's wrong with me? Everybody else in this office seems to love that this is their job. Why don't I like it? And I thought it was something wrong with me, not that there was a misfit between, you know, what what I wanted to do and what this job offered. I will say it felt like I was hitting a brick wall every single time when I realized, oh gosh, I don't like this. How am I ever going to figure it out? And my poor parents, honestly, they, I think, still don't understand what I do for a living. They do know that they don't have to give me money. So I That's think they're like, okay, she, she must be fine. <laughs> but they don't, you know, they don't know what to do. I don't think they know how to describe it to their friends or anything like that. But every single time you just, I put one foot in front of the other and was like, all right, what's the next best thing I can do? All right. If this isn't it, how do I move myself closer in some way? And it may not be straight line. It may feel like a sideways step or even a step backwards but I know it's going to open up the doors for something else that will eventually move me closer to something I want. And so I think the lesson for me has always been to be strategic, to think about what you want, to set big goals for yourself, but to also allow room for being opportunistic. 
right? Things will just land in front of you and the magic. Don't, yeah, the magic. Don't say no because it doesn't look like it's a straight line from, you know, there to where you want to go. It, it may open up some other doors for you that might even be better. So I think that's just staying open is really important. And like you said, every stumbling block, every failure, every brick wall is a learning opportunity. You know, at, at Signet, when we work with students, we work with a lot of students through our coaching practice and we tell them everything is data. Even your grades, you know, even that F on the exam, that's actually shows that you actually need to learn some more stuff and take that data and make sense of it and learn how to do it differently, better, avoid it entirely the next time. But it's not a judgment on you and it doesn't seal your fate. But what it does is it is a signal. It is a data signal that's telling you, well, something is not quite right here. Either you didn't study the right material or this is not uh, an area of strength for you, which is possible. Or, you know, you didn't get enough sleep the night before your big test or whatever it was. But there are lots of ways to think about and learn from those areas where we feel like we're not meeting our potential or doing our best. I love that. It is all data. And it's also helping you gain more Mm self-awareness because until we really know ourselves, know our strengths, know our areas for growth, know what lights us up, know what turns us off, Mm -hmm. it's hard to take Mm -hmm. that step, whether it's into a university and deciding a major or whether it's after you graduate, deciding Mm -hmm. what that first postgrad work opportunity should be. Mm -hmm. Final T for C question, Sheila. If you could go back to Harvard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think I would have encouraged myself to be more courageous and drop pre-med earlier. I think I also would have taken wilder courses. There is nothing like the time of college for exploration, right? And I was so focused on, all right, I got to do this for my major and I got to do this for the pre-med requirements. It was all kind of mapped out. It left very little room for play or exposure to things that I would just never, never study, right? I did, Harvard has a, at the time had a kind of core curriculum where you had to take these distribution requirements from across different fields. And I ended up taking a class on the history of the samurai. And it was one of my favorite classes in college. And I didn't know that I had any interest in Japanese history, but I I did. It was a fascinating class. It was a lot of fun. And I wish I had done more things like that. Me too. Me too. I did take some slightly off the wall courses, but Mm -hmm. I wish I had taken more. Sheila, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was wonderful. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712.